0: love this podcast support this show through the acar supporter feature it's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment just hit the link in the show description to support now
1: welcome to starship sofa part of the district of wonders network featuring tales to terrify and the all-new far-fetched fables everyone has a story in the district of wonders Come and find yours.
2: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to sure 200... No, it's not. It's 428. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. Well, we've got one of the old masters back on the the vocals today. Nick Cam is reading a great story. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is the main fiction, and it is by Stephen Kotovich. And it is Saturn in G minor, like I say, narrated by the one and only Mr. Nick Cam. Then we have a fact article by Mr. Sci-Fi Man himself, Mark Zickery. And he was talking about George Clayton Johnson. Now, I didn't know really anything about this kind of writer. And this is a great little fact article by Mark Zickery. Just one of his friends, one of his mates there. And like I say, it's a great education into this kind of the writer because I've seen him around. You know what I mean? I've kind of seen him knocking around with Hall Nelson and, and you know a few on videos and stuff like that. So it was nice to get a kind of bit of a a personal look at you know in, uh, look at this kind of this writer from Mark. So appreciate that. That is all coming in today's show. I do hope, yes, I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now, before that, there always isn't it? There? there always is a before. As you know, we kind of have been harping on about the kind of Hugo Awards, you know, and you know, Starship Sofa's up there for best fan cast. And the date's creeping ever, you know, ever closer, 31st of March. Well, Jeremy, you know, our editor at Starship Sofa there, I give him a leg up now. He's not assistant editor, he's now the editor of the fiction side of it. Jeremy put out a post the other day, and it was just fantastic. And it was kind of, it, it was quite startling for me to kind of realise. Hey Tony, this is what we've done. And you know what I mean, I kind of am a bit blazy and was just kind of forward all the time. And Jerry wrote this post, you know, and just like a remarkable achievement what we've done in 2015. So I asked Jeremy, just to, you know, read it out to us so we can kind of listen on this show here. You know what I mean? Because a lot of people kind of don't use the social media and the kind of Twitter and the Facebook and all that. So I've got Jeremy now who's going to kind of just read out his blog post.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Starship Surfer. I am your fiction editor, Jeremy Zal, and I just wanted to inform you of something that Tony's probably let you, already let you know once or thrice or even five times, but I'm going to do it again. Starship Surfer is currently eligible for the Hugo Award in Best Fan Cast. Uh, that's Best Fan Cast. We would be very, very much honored if you would consider us for your vote. In my completely unbiased opinion, Starship Server had a pretty fantastic year. We resurrected and played a story by the legendary creator of Game of Thrones, George RR Martin. The story was first published in the 70s and has been out of print since then, and Starship Server had the remarkable privilege of bringing it back to life in audio for the first time ever. We also played fiction by William Gibson, uh, Robin Hobb, Kim Stanley Robinson, Peter Watts, Carrie Vaughan, Alan Steele, Peter F. Hamilton, and dozens and dozens of other fantastic authors, both mammoth blockbuster names, and uh, new authors just starting out, and it's been a fantastic privilege to have worked on it. Uh, We've interviewed people like Andy Weir, the author of The Martian, Ellen Datlow, Gerber Crombie, a whole slab of uh scientists and have had we've had a huge amount of narrators as well working on these stories, work uh who have acted in uh actually acted in major blockbuster Hollywood films and who are just who are actually voice actors as well. And it's been a complete honor to have worked on Starship over this year. It really, really has. And reg- again, regardless if you're new to us or if you've been with us from the beginning It's been a fantastic honour to have been on this journey with you. So, if you do think that Starship Server is worthy, cast your vote in the hat and we would very much appreciate it. If you feel that another venue is more worthy of your vote, you can do that, but we will kill you. And I'm only partially kidding. In all seriousness, if please do vote for the venue that you feel best deserves the Hugo Award... It keeps all of us on our toes to deliver you the best content we possibly can. And if you feel that we have done that, do keep us in mind. That would be absolutely fantastic. And to thank you as well for sticking with us this long. It's been an honor. It's a privilege to work on this podcast. And yeah, that's really all the reward that we need. But a Hugo would be pretty cool as well. Thank you.
2: It does, you know, I'm quite, like you say, I'm quite, I'm quite proud and, and rather shocked, to be quite honest, do you know, what, I mean? what we've done, do you know what I mean, what we kind of achieved just in last year, do you know what I mean, like you say, we've been going 10 years now, do you know what I mean, if someone kind of stops and kind of puts the, the facts and figures of starships so over, far, this would be, be quite daunting to even carry on, do you know what I mean, but if you think we need, or in need? if you think we kind of deserve a little Hugo and you, you are participating in kind of Worldcon next year, Ooh, you know, what I mean, best fan cast would be fantastic. There you go. Let's get on to the main fiction. And it is Saturn in G minor by Stephen Kotovich. I'll give you a little heads up about Stephen. Stephen Kotovich is a Writers of the Future Grand Prize winner for Saturn in G Minor, which we're about to play now, and past finalist for the pre Aurora Award, Canada's top SF prize. His stories have appeared in Starship Sova number 259, if you wanted to go back and check that out, in his own In the Galactic Medicine show and numerous anthologies, and has been translated in dozens of languages. His first collection of short fiction, Seven Against Tomorrow, which includes Saturn in G minor and Under the Shield, is now available in both ebook and dead tree formats. For more details, you can pop over to kotovich.com. Like I say, like I say, oh, this story, this story is narrated by Mr. Nick Cam. And if newcomers might not know who Mr. Nick Cam is, so I'll, I'll be more than happy to kind of enlighten you. Nick is an actor audiobook narrator and voiceover. He recently did a few scenes on the telly with Derek Jacoby, which made him tingle. He has just finished shooting the feature film Slapper and Me, which mostly involved him sitting in a sleazy pub for 12 hours a day, smoking herbal cigarettes, drinking tepid non-alcoholic ale and pretending to be in the 70s. He thinks it should be out in the autumn but they're not telling him, probably because they don't want him turning up in the premiere in his cheap suit, and oh my God, it's cheap. Oh, yes. Audiobook-wise, Nick is currently four books into narrating the mystery thriller Eddie Malone series written by Richard Pittman and Joe McNally. Set in the Skuldurgus world of horse racing, reluctant part-time detective Eddie gets involved in various cabas and generally solves stuff. <laughs> It is the first time in many a year that Nick has read and enjoyed a set of novels where spaceships refuse to appear. Notwithstanding, Nick has made a polite suggestion to the authors that shiny, future-type stuff might feature in the next series, a hawk drive engine. Kill a robot horse, perhaps. This has fallen on deaf ears, of course. If you want him to narrate a book, you can be found at Twitter, and it is at NickCam1, capital N, capital C, one. And there's a link on there if you want him to do some acting, just, you know, on a a one-to-one basis as well. Nick just kills this story. Well done, sir. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present.
1: Saturn in G Minor by Stephen Kotovich Come if you must, but you only, the email read. You must leave on the first freighter departing after your arrival. No extended stay, no exception. That four-year-old email was the only contact Jacinto Caroni had ever had with Paolo, the famed composer. Paolo lived alone on a tiny space station at Saturn's rings, and as far as Jacinto could tell, that email was the only contact Paolo had had with anyone save the freighter captains in nearly thirty years. You must leave on the first freighter departing after your arrival. Sixteen days. One orbit of Titan around Saturn. That's how long the supply freighter would take dropping off the new science team and resupplying the research station at Titan before starting a four year trip back to its birth at Mars. Bang! The deck plates rattled as a large ice meteoroid struck Jacinto's shuttle. Containers of supplies surrounding him, enough to support Paolo and his small space station for another four years, shook and shifted under their cargo mesh. He was holding his breath, Jacinto realized and let it escape as a slow hiss through his teeth more impacts followed as smaller chunks buffeted the hull crewmen on the freighter who'd helped him get strapped in told Jacinto to expect a bumpy ride the shuttle's course took it close enough to the plane of Saturn's rings that hitting stray ice was to be expected don't worry, a crewman had laughed as the hatch was closing there probably won't be a whole breach the containers settled as the large impacts stopped "'swishing sounds of dust and the plink-pop of micrometeoroids "'against the hull again filled Jacinto's ears. "'It was a comforting sound, like soft rain on a tin roof. "'How long had it been since he'd heard rain? "'Almost six years, he thought. "'The last time he'd been on Earth. "'He loosened his white-knuckled grip on the chair-arms. Six years of travel for sixteen days on Paolo's station. "'A long way to come for so short a visit.' and when the cargo sled left the station to auto rendezvous with the freighter Jacinto had to be on it another four years would pass before the next freighter relieved the crew of the Titan Research Station and dropped off new supplies to Paolo no extended stays what would it be like to meet him Jacinto wondered there was so much to talk about so much to ask him where to begin he had his list of interview questions for his research he could start there Other questions could wait He read the email again He lost count of how many times he had read it before Everything else he knew of Paolo had been learned in the course of his doctoral research He'd read every book, every article seen the old documentary streams and the rare interviews Paolo had given about his rise from academic obscurity to international celebrity And there was what his mother had told him, of course She'd been one of Paolo's graduate students at Concordia before he hit it big Getting email from the orbit of Saturn had impressed Jacinto, almost as much as that it was from Paolo. He'd never been off-planet before, so to think of the signal coming millions of miles by laser pulse was almost too much for him to imagine. Now he'd come all that way, hadn't he? It hardly seemed real. The auto-guidance computer slowed the cargo shuttle on approach to the station, matching its axial rotation, Jacinto felt the soft kisses shuttle and station met He waited until the airlock pressurised and as the small light beside the door turned green he reached for the handle Before he could grab it, the door swung open and there on the other side was Paolo He was no longer the suave, vigorous man from the documentary streams and old photos Gone was the lush, jet-black hair replaced by a thin white fringe around his otherwise bold, spotted head A bushy, salt-and-pepper beard obscured his strong jawline. His frame, once broad and muscular, had withered. Paolo's shirt, decades out of fashion, might once have fit, but was now too big. His spindly, liver-spotted arms were lost in the billowy sleeves. His eyes, though, remained bright. People who'd met Paolo before he left Earth, especially women, always mentioned his piercing gaze. "'Your coroni!' Paolo asked, his Montreal accent still noticeable Jacinto Caroni, he smiled and extended his hand It's a real pleasure to meet you Paolo took Jacinto's hand in a weak grip and gave it a few slight pumps This way, Paolo said and he inched down the corridor and around a corner Even his steps were frail Jacinto followed, not sure what to make of the welcome the corridor was white and empty... ...except for a hatch that didn't match the station design. Paolo heard retrofitted the station with an escape pod. Jacinto laughed at himself. What point was there in having an escape pod installed... when no one would be around to rescue you in an emergency? Paolo showed him to quarters that were clean and prepared for a guest... ...but were as far from Paolo's room as could be found on such a small station. Except for areas frequented by Paolo... Which were clean and impeccably organised. Most other sections of the station were run down. Conversation over a dinner of freeze dried food and hydroponic vegetables was stilted at best, with Jacinto doing most of the talking. He was painfully aware at times how fawning he sounded, and would retreat into silence. For his part, Paolo was quiet. He kept his eyes downcast or closed altogether. Wincing sometimes as if in pain, he would hum softly without noticing,' Jacinto thought. "'It was slightly more than an hour's delay for transmissions by laser pulse, "'but Paolo had little knowledge of current events on Earth or Mars "'and no interest in being brought up to speed. "'He didn't want to talk politics, pop culture or even music. "'I don't know his work,' Paolo said when asked his thoughts "'on the latest piece by Gibson Fraser.' Jacinto didn't think it right to tell him it was a two-woman composing team. Music today is just a derivative form of the work I was doing thirty years ago, he said. It doesn't interest me or bear talking about. Jacinto would have liked to debate the point. Paolo had single-handedly brought electroacoustic composition into vogue all those years ago, but there had been a lot of innovation work done since. But he decided not to press the issue until he knew the man better. An argument wouldn't do on the first day they'd met. When asked questions, Paolo would answer succinctly and then fall silent. Jacinto had expected he would welcome the opportunity to talk, the opportunity for human contact. But perhaps, he now thought, conversation was like a muscle that needed exercise to remain vital. Paolo's conversation was as withered by isolation in space as his body had been. Paolo grimaced as if in pain. "'I'm going to bed. My head!' he rubbed at his temple. "'You have questions for me. An interview for your research. "'Give them to me tomorrow. I'll look them over. We'll talk in a few days. "'I have a schedule of work. It won't change, just because you're here. "'I don't sleep much, and I'm up at 0400. "'I'll be in the main control room working tomorrow. "'When you're awake, we'll unload the shuttle.' With that, Paolo stood and left the mess. Jacinto spent the next hour exploring the small station. It was the original Titan Research Facility, Gurnet Station, built for a crew of sixteen and bought by Paolo when the new station came online. Many sections of the sixty-year-old station were on low-power standby or sealed off. The hydroponics garden was suffering neglect. Jacinto thought its yield could dramatically increase if Paolo put in even a little effort. Like much else there, it seemed forgotten by the station's only resident. A great deal of work had been done modifying the other sections of the station, though, with the addition of an escape pod being the least of it. Jacinto yawned as he passed another case of freeze-dried food through the airlock. He thought it best to impress Paolo and get an O400 start, too. Three hours slugging cases of supplies had him questioning his decision. Paolo, conversely, was a morning person. He was no more talkative than the night before, but he had energy to burn. Despite Jacinto's efforts at small talk, Paolo kept silent, save the occasional instruction on which Casey wanted next. Even questions about Paolo's career and compositions went tersely answered. The tedium was numbing. Most of the composers Jacinto had interviewed for his dissertation had been only too happy to talk about themselves. Paolo's laconic nature didn't bode well for his usefulness as an interviewee, all the worse, given Paolo and his composition were the focus of Jacinto's research. Jacinto bent down to lift one of the cases and let out a grunt when he couldn't get it more than a few centimetres off the shuttle floor before dropping it. He stood and stretched his back. What's in this one? Rocks? From the far side of the airlock Paolo peered over at the case. Yeah, actually. Jacinto turned incredulous. What do you need rocks for? Paolo smiled for the first time since Jacinto arrived. Come, I'll show you. I call this system the Plectrum, said Paolo, as he and Jacinto dumped the last of five containers of pebbles into the hopper. I've spent almost my whole fortune to build the Plectrum and keep the station running, said Paolo. These pebbles are regular from asteroid mining. That made sense, Jacinto thought. His hands were coal black from the dust and felt like they were coated in toner. They're such small sizes, only a centimetre to ten centimetres across. There's not much use for them industrially, so I get them cheap from the mining companies. This is the last batch. The system's ready for the performance. The key is the size of the object striking the rings. Jacinto didn't understand but this at least was a sign of life from the man. He didn't interrupt. I hear music, you see, said Paolo as he closed the hopper, snapped tight its pressure fitting, and mag-sealed the housing. Airtight now, he said, smiling. He strolled down the corridor toward the control room, and Jacinto followed. All my life I've heard music, constantly, the way Beethoven did. In some ways I've felt a fraud as a composer. I transcribe what I hear in my head where does it come from he shrugged and keyed in the door code, the control room doors hissed open, I would compose, arrange but I could never get the music to sound as it does in my head it would be the right notes but the sound of them was wrong the essence that's what drew me to electroacoustics Paolo said climbing into the console chair it was a very old style of composition when you came to it, said Jacinto. There'd always been a small, dedicated core of electroacoustic composers since the genre's birth in the mid twentieth century. Once it was even considered avant garde, art music for a postmodern age, but it fell out of fashion. The postmodern was surpassed, and it was kept alive in university music departments. "'Concordia University, where Paolo had taught "'and where Jacinto was doing his doctorate "'at one of the world's oldest programmes "'dating back almost 150 years to the 1980s. "'You didn't feel it might limit you?' "'Hmm, I did at first, said Paolo. "'For years I worked in the genre. "'My inspiration was one of the earliest examples in the genre, "'the prepared piano.' I turned the exotic into instruments to get the sounds I needed. Remember the concerto using the Golden Gate Bridge? Jacinto nodded. Paolo had used the girders and tension wires as his instrument, the sound resonating across San Francisco Bay. The city still had it performed every summer. That was just one example. My works were always well received, but they weren't what I was after. Jacinto grinned. Now he was getting somewhere To think of Paolo describing his works as well-received Paolo had arrived at one of those rare moments When artists and audience are in perfect confluence When his work had redefined the basis of modern popular music for decades Besides spawning legions of imitators His music had made him one of the richest men on Earth And the richest on Mars once he'd moved there But his compositions hadn't been what he wanted That would be news to everyone. Jacinto wished he had his recorder with him. Then I happened upon the records of the Cassini probe from the early 21st century. Completely by accident, you understand. And that's when everything changed. Paolo stood up and walked to the back of the room where five large objects lay under heavy plastic sheets. He pulled them off to reveal banks of keyboards, twenty in all, set in tears along the wall. "'What the Cassini probe discovered was that "'as a meteoroid strikes the icy chunks making up Saturn's rings, "'it generates a pulse of energy and emits radio waves. "'Reduce the frequency by a factor of five, "'and you bring those radio waves into the range of human hearing. "'Tones. "'We have our instrument, "'but it's limited in range, random in its execution.' "'So we take charge of the meteoroids,' said Paolo. "'He moved back to the console chair and turned on the computer's 3D display. "'We use pebbles of different sizes, fire them at different speeds. "'They strike with more or less energy, generating different radio frequencies, "'and suddenly the rings become strings. "'Pluck and strike them as you would the harpsichord, the piano or the harp.' The rings bow to our command, and the music we play, the music of the spheres, is what we compose. All we need is an interface of some kind, a a controller like these keyboards. We program them to regulate the cues for the firing sequence, and all of Saturn becomes our hammered dulcimer. You're going to play music on Saturn's rings? Yep, said Paolo. An entire symphony and you will help me finish it. Why won't you let me work on the last movement? Jacinto asked over a dinner of rehydrated chicken. He and Paolo had been working furiously for days inputting the final sequence for the Saturn Symphony, as he'd begun to call it. Paolo would input the notes using the keyboards, each key set to trigger the release of certain sized pellets from the sorted hopper bins of the plectrum. "'and Jacinto would add in, by hand, dynamics where Paolo had indicated. "'The composer had it all planned out "'and just needed Jacinto to do the tedious grunt work as it turned out. "'Rinforzando, fortissimo, diminuendo, mezzo piano "'all entered as long, increasing strings of digits "'into the command protocols for the firing sequence. "'But Jacinto had four days left on the station "'and had yet to see the sequencing for the finale. "'That section is mine!' Paolo said before taking another bite. Back to his prickly self, Jacinto nodded. That was the pattern, tolerable in the mornings, difficult at night, once the headaches set in. If I could just get a look at it, for my research. The final movement is off-limits to you and your research until it's finished, Paolo said, pointing his plastic fork at Jacinto with every emphasis. It will all be done in a few days. I'll answer questions for your research— Then I will perform the symphony at last. Paolo had a longing look in his eye, one of anticipated relief. Will you be returning on the freighter? Jacinto sounded more hopeful than he'd intended. Why did you come here? Paolo asked. He winced as if something pained him and rubbed at his eyes. I came to meet you for my research, Jacinto said. You're a young man. You've... Wasted a lot of time coming all this way, only to have to go back. Don't waste your time traveling. No one finds what they seek in traveling. But I found you. All you've found of me is a cross-section, a fragment. You'll take what you want to, never knowing the whole. You've wasted all this time, and you'll have nothing to show for it. Did you waste your time? What have you got to show for all these years out here? It was angrier than Jacinto meant it to sound, but not angrier than he felt. Ah, but you see, I belong here. You don't. I've arrived where I'm going. You know, my mother's told me a lot about you, Jacinto said with an edge to his voice that surprised even him. Paolo looked up. Your mother? Cassandra Caroni. She was one of your grad students at Concordia. I know who she is. Paolo snapped. Why do you think I agreed to your visit? What did she tell you about me? Stories about being your student, seeing you in concert, watching you become famous. Paolo considered this a moment. You look a lot like her. That's what everyone says. Jacinto gave a cold smile. She says I have my father's eyes, though. Paolo chewed his last bit of chicken without looking up from the table. When he was finished, he stood and left without cleaning up his mess from the table. Paolo spent the day after their fight in his room. It must have been a terrible migraine, Jacinto decided. He could hear Paolo whimpering and crying through the door when he went to check on him that morning. Did the music cause his headaches, he wondered. Settling into the console chair, Jacinto turned on the computer's 3D display. He began tabbing through the programme files for the firing sequence looking for anything that might be the final movement. Paolo seemed determined to thwart his research. With only three days left before he had to depart, Jacinto had yet to see any results from the final section, and he had no interview with the focus of his research. Empty-handed, isn't that what Paolo had said? He'd be damned if he was going to let Paolo be right. There! That menu was what he was looking for. It was the only one listing a final movement. Denouement, Paolo had named it He reached out and pushed the floating command icon to begin playback Leaning back in the chair, Jacinto folded his arms, immensely satisfied. He'd pulled one over on the old man As soon as the playback engaged he could hear and feel the change in the station. It was a power down, station wide A sudden queasiness filled Jacinto's stomach as the station section he was in slowed its spinning He wished he could blame his nausea on the gravity loss. The whole of the small space station shuddered as the spinning sections ground to a halt. He remembered what Paolo had said to him about the power drain when the sequence was performed. Gravity was a luxury that could be sacrificed. Jacinto raced through menus on the holographic display, 3D command icons spinning in the air around him, trying to find some way to abort the sequence. He couldn't find a straightforward cancel command and worried about selecting something that would do more damage. Put in! Paolo cursed. What have you done? he had appeared at the compartment door, floating in zero-G. Pushing hard off the door frame. Paolo rocketed across the room. Out! Get out! He shoved Jacinto from the console chair, pulled himself down and strapped in. Paolo punched keys and scanned the readouts. The sequencing is queuing to start. I... I, I didn't mean to. I was just... I wanted to finish off the programming you asked me to do... Yusinto's denial sounded weak even to him. Don't lie to me. You accessed the sequencing for the final movement. I told you it was off-limits to your damned research. Why the hell wouldn't you show me? Yasinto banged his fist against the console. He started to drift in the Zero-G and grabbed hold of the chair to stop, raging at himself. I never should have agreed to let you come, Paolo said. Can't you just shut it down? Yusinto asked. He struggled to position himself in zero-g Paolo's chair, his only anchor Shut off the power Will that reset the sequence? And what then? Paolo turned a wild look in his eye This station is almost as old as I am What if the power won't come back on? Then we both die Paolo turned back to the console Why had he said both that way? Yusinto's queasiness grew stronger "'What about overriding the controls for the rotating sections?' "'Yucinto asked. Won't setting them in motion again "'cause a power drain and cancel the firing sequence?' "'That's not the way it works!' "'Paolo began rubbing at his temples. "'Stop yelling at me!' Jacinto shook Paolo's chair with both hands. "'I'm trying to help! "'By trying to destroy the station!' "'Paolo shot back. "'It's going to take all available power "'to operate the plectrum "'and keep the station's attitude constant at the same time!' If those sections start rotation, not only will the plectrum's firing sequence not run properly and the whole performance fail, but the station will spin out of control and smash into the rings. Or it may simply tear the station apart first. Do you wish to choose? A klaxon sounded and four 2D video streams popped up from the display, each showing different angles of the station's exterior. Taken from the station's own system of microsatellites... Two videos showed the station in relief against a backdrop of Saturn. The field of view was too small to show the whole planet, but the swirling gas clouds and the vast, cream-yellow face of Saturn was still breathtaking. The other video stream showed the bottom of the station, now only several hundred metres above the plane of Saturn's rings, and the hatched doors of the pletrum system opening. Another klaxon sounded and Paolo spun his chair around. There, along the back wall of the control room, the bank of keyboards powered up. Keys on the first synthesizer began to move in their pre-programmed dance, one at first, then two, then whole chords, then another of the synthesizers, then another, until keys of all twenty writhed and moved as if commanded by an orchestra of spectral players. From unseen speakers came the first notes of the symphony from Saturn's rings. "'Merde!' said Paolo. Though he'd helped programme in the sequences for many sections of the symphony, as the music came through the speakers for the first time, Jacinto knew he hadn't expected this. He played through sections on piano, trying to work out the dynamics from the notation Paolo had given him. The timing was strange, though, and Jacinto couldn't grasp the whole. He thought he had, intellectually, some idea what to expect when he heard the piece performed. But now... Each note was a distinct tone, and not the eerie theremin-like noise of other space phenomena Jacinto had heard recorded. As clear as notes on piano. But the sound... The sound was unique. Unlike any sound, real, synthesized or manipulated, that Jacinto had ever heard. And the limitations of using the plectrum to play the rings gave unique structural qualities to the piece. No Bent notes were possible, no vibrato or glissando, no sustains longer than two or three seconds, and even with all the careful programming an element of uncertainty pervaded the piece. There was no way to know the composition and layout of the rings below, or how they would react to the strikes from the plectrum. The piece was characterized instead by playfulness as Paolo fooled and tricked the ear of the listener. Careful overlapping of note voicings mimicked some of the impossible elements of technique. Doubling and tripling notes gave artificial sustain, produced delay and echo effects. As he listened, Jacinto realised the whole was made up of four different satellite streams. Radio and plasma wave detectors on each of the station's four microsatellites detected the same frequencies at slightly different intervals based on distance from the source. The result was four threads of music binding together to make the whole Paolo had incorporated the slight delay and variations into the composition the symphony shimmered with texture and life Paolo had married the most innovative elements of his atonal avant-garde composition with the forms and patterns of the classical this would do it Jacinto realised this would redefine music again the way Paolo had decades ago Jacinto turned to congratulate him on a masterwork but the console chair was empty. He looked behind him to see Paolo disappearing out the control room door. Where was he going? Turning back on the 2D, Jacinto saw the streams of pellets from the plectrum falling like glittering rain from the station, but there was something else. He looked closer. The station itself was moving farther and farther from the rings. It was picking up speed. He pushed off the console chair and sailed to the open door. Kicking hard off the doorframe, Jacinto launched himself down the corridor. He saw Paolo around the corner at the near junction, turning down the empty white corridor. He wouldn't. Jacinto pumped his arms and legs as if swimming, but it didn't help and he cursed Zero-G again. He had to catch Paolo. His arms flailed for a hold, something to slow him as he approached the junction. Fingernails skipped and skittered along the plastic and metal walls of the corridor sailing past the open doorway he saw Paolo punching in a code at the escape pod door no! Jacinto yelled his fingers ached as he strained for purchase on the wall fingertips found the thin edge of the door frame it was enough his body swung around slamming flat against the bulkhead he pulled himself around the door frame as Paolo slipped through the escape pod hatch Jacinto kicked off one last time as the hatch door slid shut his arms outstretched don't leave me! "'Don't leave me here, you son of a bitch!' "'He pounded on the solid metal door, screaming, but no answer came. "'His throat roared, and with tears in his eyes, "'Yacinto pushed himself back down the corridor. "'Yacinto rushed to the control room. "'He had to stop the escape pod from leaving. "'Instead, he found Paolo's face on the 2D. "'You bastard!' "'Yacinto yelled as he pulled himself into the seat. "'You're not leaving me here to die!' He scrolled through the menus, looking for an override. Damn fool, Paolo said. You're not going to die. There's no stopping the sequence once it's started, and it's almost time for the final movement, so listen to me. Jacinto looked at the 2D, tears in his eyes. Everything is working just as it should, Paolo said. The station is moving. Jacinto checked the other 2Ds, and the station was moving faster than before. Of course it is, Paolo barked. It's taking all the station's power to run the plectrum and the stabilizing thrusters to keep the station's attitude constant. Attitude is another matter. I build it into my composition. That's why the number sets you entered keep getting bigger, longer intervals between striking notes. It's for the station's... for your safety. You can't be too near during the final crescendo. Why not? On cue... This escape pod will launch into the rings and play the final movement of my symphony. Paolo moved away from the camera lens, and Jacinto saw the interior of the escape pod behind him. Dozens of grey bundles lined the walls, connected by coils of yellow wire. When this pod explodes, it will set a chain reaction of collisions in motion, generating more notes than I could ever play in a lifetime of playing music. A last great... "'sustained cacophony to conclude my masterpiece.' Jacinto's mouth worked, but no sound came out. "'This is the way I want it, Yacinto,' said Paolo. "'I've suffered too long with this music. "'With the headaches it brings me, "'the sleeplessness, the agony. "'There's no stopping it short of this.' "'Paolo reached out toward the camera to kill the feed. "'Wait!' Jacinto yelled, and Paolo hesitated. ''But, Maestro, you won't be able to hear the final composition if you die.'' ''Ah, I've already heard it,'' Paolo said, wincing again. ''I've heard it a thousand million times through every moment of my life. Waking or sleeping, it never left me. It's been my lover and my demon, caressing and tormenting me all this time.'' My other works have been pale imitations of this piece. Simple warm-ups. The composer gives part of himself away every time he writes a piece. He writes himself into the music in ways he doesn't even realize. The music demands it. This piece, well, it demands more. I must die. It must live. No, please, no! No! Goodbye, Jacinto, said Paolo, reaching toward the camera. You'll find what you need in my cabin. Tell your mother, tell her I'm sorry. For everything. The image on the 2D died. Jacinto felt the station rock as the pod blasted away. He screamed in impotent rage. The tiny cargo shuttle seemed cavernous now. It was as empty as Jacinto felt. It was only a few hours before the rendezvous with the freighter. Not that Jacinto relished the idea of company. On a handheld, he scrolled through the answers Paulo had left to his research questions. Paolo had never intended to sit down for an interview, instead writing paragraph after paragraph of response for Jacinto to sort through later. It would make a groundbreaking thesis but the thought brought Jacinto no joy. He'd gathered up Paolo's few possessions and fit them all in two small cargo shells for the journey home. Paolo had left a will too, though Jacinto hadn't the heart to read it. A recording of the symphony played over the shuttle speaker system. It was so loud the speakers crackled with distortion. The volume was almost painful. The station's computer had recorded the whole piece as it played out so that it was preserved, at least. It was the first and last performance of the Saturn Symphony, Jacinto thought. No one could imitate Paolo this time. There would be no derivatives. On the four-year voyage home, Jacinto knew he would listen to the Saturn Symphony as many countless times as he'd read that brief email on the journey out. And he would cry each time, as he did now, He had the shuttle's 2D on The exterior camera trained behind him The station was long since out of view Momentum from the plectrum would carry it far into space Instead, Saturn filled the screen He couldn't see the whole planet Perhaps just a quarter But the width of its rings was clear enough A dark bruise marked the A-ring Where Paolo had struck his final chord Matter spilled out into the Cassini Gap and toward the B-ring like salt spilled against the blackness of space. Saturn's rings turned slowly like an old gramophone record, playing their endless symphony.
2: There you go, don't forget, copyright is... Stephen Kotovic. Stephen, thank you so much, sir. Lovely to have you on again. And Nicholas. eh? Your mummy only calls you Nicholas, yeah, little tinger, yeah? Eh? You pulled that one out of the bag. That's fantastic, Nick. Thank you so much. So, on to the main, like, the fact of the day. And it's about, like I say, it's about a writer kind of, I just... Never knew, do you know, maybe because it's the kind of old twilight things and, you know, and I've never, you know, never come across him until recently. And I've seen like a video, i seen him, he was with Harlan Ellison. And Harlan, you know, you could just tell there was a the kind of bondship there, you know what I mean? Hold his hand, squeezed his hand and that. And, you know, if you're kind of all right in Harlan's world, that's, you know, a fine fella. So it's nice to get Mark Zickery on to kind of talk about George Clayton Johnson.
3: Hi guys, it's Mark Zikri, Mr. Sci-Fi, also known as Mark Zikri of Space Command. And it's been a little while since I've done a Mr. Sci-Fi video because I have been busy, busy, busy. Uh, lots is going on, but that is not what this video is about. Because last Christmas Day, my dear friend George Clayton Johnson passed away. It was 91 years to the day that Rod Serling was born. And that's particularly meaningful because George Clayton Johnson along with Rod, was one of the great writers of The Twilight Zone. He provided the stories that Rod adapted into the scripts for Execution and The Four of Us Are Dying, and he wrote the scripts for Nothing in the Dark, Kick the Can, Penny for Your Thoughts, and A Game of Pool, all great Twilight Zone episodes. In addition, he, uh, he did the story for an episode called um, uh, 90 Years Without Slumbering, but it was very, very different from the, uh, the story that he uh, initiated, but more than that, I just want to talk about my friendship and, and uh, experience with George Clayton Johnson. He was a unique human being. Those of you who met him know exactly what I'm talking about. But I just wanted to kind of share some personal reminiscences and uh, and let you in on my my private world of science fiction that has been so meaningful to me and so such a joy and has led me to where I am now. So let me talk to you about the first moment I encountered George Clayton Johnson's work. And it's a moment that many of you in counties work for the first time as well. Now, uh, when I was 10 years old, I was every bit as much of a science fiction fan um, as I am now, but uh, certain things had not yet occurred. 2001 A Space Odyssey had not been made yet, uh, had not come out, and uh, there was one other event that had not yet occurred that would be, I think, at least artistically and creatively, the defining moment of my life. And basically it started when uh nbc was promoting uh the coming fall season and some of the shows that were coming back and some of the shows that were going to debut and they hired an an artist a terrific artist named james bama to do four posters promoting some of the shows they had already on the air and some of the shows that were coming and he he did very nice posters for shows like bonanza and uh, yet there was a new one And, and basically what they would do is oddly they wouldn't have commercials showing clips from these shows, they would instead just show the poster for like five seconds, five or ten seconds, and say, coming in the fall. And one of these illustrations was remarkable, unlike anything I'd ever seen before. It showed a planet with a very strange-looking spaceship rocketing around it with flame coming out the back and, and heads, uh, portrait heads of some of the stars. And one of them was a, was a very dashing young man, very handsome young man. But next, behind him, was another character who looked... Unlike anything I'd ever seen before. And because the thing was going so fast, I had to keep looking for it. This is before uh, video recorders. You couldn't stop, you know, record a show and watch it again or slow it down or still frame it. You had to watch it when it came on, whenever it came on. And so I'd look for this commercial. And then there it was again. And I'd, I'd look closely. I'd sit close, as close as I could to the screen. And it was like, that guy in the back, he's kind of greenish, green-skinned. And, and are, are those pointed ears? By, by God, he has pointed ears. And then finally, and then the show was going to be coming. I thought, I've, I've got to see this. I've got to see this show. And the first moment it debuted, the first moment that it aired, I was hooked. And it basically defined what has come since in my life. I mean, basically, if, if not for, for Star Trek, and of course it was Star Trek, there would be no Space Command. Uh, and what Gene Roddenberry stood for was defined and delineated in that first moment. But Gene Roddenberry was not the writer of that first moment. It was an episode called The Man Trap, and it was written by George Clayton Johnson. And it was a spectacular, wonderful episode. The basic plot was an alien, the last of its race, needs salt to live, and it is disguising itself as human beings to get that salt. But because it's not given salt, it has to kill people and draw the salt from their bodies. And and remarkably, this is an episode where the Enterprise crew takes the wrong action, is, is wrong, is in the wrong, because here's the last of a sentient species... And in disguise, it, it says, well, why don't we just give it, it... It's disguised as McCoy. It says, why don't we just give it salt? And they say, no, 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 no. We've, it's too dangerous. We've got to kill it. Well, you know, <laughs> no, you've just got to give it salt. <laughs> but uh, so the Enterprise wipes it out. But it was an amazing episode. It, it, it established Kirk and Spock and, and McCoy for the first time to the popular imagination. And it got things rolling. And uh, and it was thanks to George Clayton Johnson. Now, now, that wasn't the first time he'd written about someone... Changing his appearance to blend in, his or her appearance to blend in, because before he wrote the Man Trap, he wrote he came up with story four. The four of us are dying, which was aired as a Twilight Zone episode about a man who can change his face. And it's no surprise that George wanted or fantasized about the power to imitate others to not be noticed, because he had started life as an impoverished, uh, impoverished young man in Wyoming. His mother was an alcoholic. Uh, he uh, he came from mixed uh, white and, uh, and and Indian. Background, and he said that you know, with her, she, you know, there there'd be times when there wouldn't be food in the house. She wouldn't notice those kind of things. So, so George was very eager for escape. And when he was young, he was bedridden for a time, and just fantasized and read, and uh, and and dreamed of a different life. And as soon as he could, he made his way out here to L.A. and started working to become a writer. He came up with a short a story that was made into the movie Ocean's Eleven, and he fell in with. Charles Beaumont, one of the great Twilight Zone writers, and his band of friends—John Tomerlin, William F. Nolan—and they would drive around and they would talk about writing and talk about life. These were all young men in their in their in their twenties and early thirties, and 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 they were known as the group. And they, it was an incredible, fertile, um, place where they were just full of life and full of dreams and, and able to express them in fantastical ways. And they loved science fiction. They loved many, many, many things, and. Uh, and over all of them, as sort of a patron saint, was Ray Bradbury, who was one of the great mentors of Charles Beaumont and also Richard Matheson. In fact, when Twilight Zone sold, uh, Ray, Rod Serling called Ray Bradbury and said, educate me about science fiction. And he pointed uh, Rod to two of his protégés, Charles Beaumont and Richard Matheson, and they became two of the great writers of the Twilight Zone. And through that, George had an entree to submit to Twilight Zone. But the fascinating story of this is that at one point, George was opining, and he was very. He had a lot of opinions. He was very talkative. He was opining to Charles Beaumont one night about his opinions. And at that point, he'd sold a couple of short stories to uh, to Twilight Zone, but not scripts. And Beaumont said to him, "Look, George, if uh, if we're going to listen to you and respect you, and, and, and you know, you think you you think you are, are better than all of us, and you have these, all of these opinions, but unless you can prove that you can you can you write." Better than us, you know, or as well as us, we're not going to respect you. And so that put the fire under George to insist on getting a teleplay assignment, to insist on getting a script assignment on on Twilight Zone. And here's the way that happened Uh, George had written a, a story called Sea Change and sold it to Twilight Zone. And it was a very interesting and odd story about a man on a boat who loses his hand, and the hand grows back. And, and, but amazingly, the, the severed hand grows another body, and that's this monstrous creature that, that rampages and scares everyone and is on the ship. And, and it was this very weird story, and they sold it to Twilight Zone, and it was the only story that the sponsor, General Foods, rejected. And, uh, and Buck Houghton came to George and said, uh, Mr. Johnson, I'm, I'm very, very sorry, but uh, you know, uh, could, would you be willing to buy this back? And, uh, because we can't use it. And George said to Buck Houghton, the producer of Twilight Zone, he said, only if the next time I have an idea that you want to buy, you let me write the teleplay. And so that was the deal. And then uh, that worked really well. And George wrote a script for A Penny for Your Thoughts, which starred Dick York as a bank teller who gets the power to read minds. And it was a delightful comedic episode, but also with a point that people think things they'll, they'll never do and do things they're not thinking about and that, and that people are very curious, curious creatures. Now, George told me later that he intended uh, to, he, he had the idea for a series about someone getting this coin each week that allows them to read minds, different people. And he said the next episode would have been one where a guy gets the coin and he's a gambler, and um, and, uh, and he rises and rises, winning all these poker games, because he can read the minds of the other players. And finally, he gets the, the, the top poker game, the great poker game, against the greatest poker player of all. And that poker player, uh, he's, when he sits down at the table to, to gamble, he sees that that poker player is Chinese, and he thinks in Chinese. And so, and so the guy can't read his mind. So uh, really, really fun. Now, in terms of gambling, George actually came up with another story that wasn't credited to him. It was a story called The Prime Mover about a guy who has the power to move objects with his mind, and he and his buddy go to Vegas to make a killing, and uh, and that was actually adapted. Charles Beaumont needed a story for Twilight Zone, didn't have a story, so he bought that story from George, and they just, by mistake, they forgot to credit George. Now in the Twilight Zone Companion, I credit George, and so that's that's rectified, but it's another delightful episode. So, so after, again, after he did... Uh, He did uh, Twilight Zone. He then was invited, along with Matheson and many of the other writers who'd worked on Twilight Zone, to write for Star Trek. And then, just by the luck of the draw, he ended up getting the first episode that ever aired, which was The Man Trap, and was just wonderful. Now, around about the same time, one of his other buddies uh, who drove with Beaumont was William F. Nolan, another young hotshot and very ambitious writer. And they had this idea for a novel. Now, back then, if you were writing science fiction novels, you might... uh, you might sell it for like three thousand dollars if you were lucky, maybe a thousand, and uh, that was. And so, those science fiction writers generally were very impoverished, and uh, you know, scraping by, maybe working other jobs to make a living, insurance salesmen, teachers, etc. But uh, Bill Nolan had a great idea. He said, "Listen, George, let's do this. Let's aim higher. Uh, let's write this book, and." sell it to a publisher who doesn't publish science fiction, a mainstream publisher, and set our goal to sell this to the movies, and our goal will be to sell it for $100,000. Now, this is you know, the, late, the late 60s, and that's a huge sum of money. And so they said, OK, let's do it. Absolutely. So they sat down and furiously pounded out this novel, which was called Logan's Run. And it was about a future society. This was, again, written during the height of the hippie era. And it's about a future, future society where you, ha- you live a glorious life until you turn 30 and your palm flower turns from red to black. This, this glowing thing in the, in the palm of your hand. And then you're uh, executed exterminated and it was written with enormous vibrancy and inventiveness and fun and very quickly and you can and reading it it's 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 a it's a fun novel not a perhaps not a great novel but a very fun novel and it was bought and adapted into a movie starring michael york and uh jenny agator quite a fun movie but not a great movie either and then it was made as a as a tv series now now eventually um that I'm sure that book will be remade into probably a much better version. Brian Singer's been trying for years to get it made. We'll see what happens. But, uh, but it was a huge success for George and for Bill Nolan. And, and then uh, things changed between them, and they kind of came to a parting of the ways creatively. But they agreed that they would each write their own sequels to Logan's Run. And Bill Nolan has written a number of sequels. George, uh, George was working on a sequel for many years that didn't get published, but it was something he was laboring upon. Now, let's talk a little bit about, bit about George as a person, because I haven't talked about him much as a, as a human being, but he was just... Ah, to, you, you would never forget him once you met him. And let me, let me talk about him personally for a moment, because I mentioned that when I, when I saw Twilight Zone, when I saw, when I saw Star Trek, these left an indelible impression on me. And, um, you know, the three shows that made me want to be a writer were Star Trek, Twilight Zone, and Outer Limits, the original versions of those three shows. So, uh, and my heroes watching those shows were not the actors, they were the writers. The people I wanted to meet were the writers, Harlan Ellison and Richard Matheson and uh, Gene Roddenberry and D.C. Fontana and David Gerald and and, and so forth. And uh, so, as soon as I was old enough, um, I started going to science fiction conventions. And I love science fiction, I love the world of science fiction, because you can... Meet your heroes, and you can go to these events. And uh, my, Fred, my friend Fred Bronson, who later wrote for Star Trek The Next Generation, took me to my first science fiction convention, to a banquet at the World Science Fiction Convention, when I was, I think, 13. And the first writer I ever saw at a convention was David Gerald, who wrote The Trouble with Tribbles, and, and ironically actually went to college with my wife. But, uh, but then I started going myself when I was around 16, 16 years old, and they had a great conventions. I grew up in L.A., and they had great science fiction conventions in San Diego, FilmCon and Equicon. And Bjo Trimble and her husband John Trimble were were part of the part of these conventions, and uh, and Bjo did the letter writing campaign that got Star Trek a uh, a third season. Some of you know that story. I'll do that. I'll talk about that story another time. But one of the first writers I met at one of these first conventions was George Clayton Johnson, and at the time he must have been in his late forties or early fifties and he was dressed in bright, bright colors, bright oranges and yellows and reds, electric colors. And, uh, and, uh, he had, he had long gray hair and sort of, sort of silver gray hair and, uh, or, or more like gunmetal. And, uh, and he was clean shaven at that time. He had these high cheekbones and this big toothy grin and, uh, And just uh, just an amazing guy, and clearly he was uh, the sixties had been good to him. He was uh, you know a fan, very much a fan of the counterculture. Now this is very interesting because when he wrote for Twilight Zone, that was before that period, and he smoked cigarettes, and he had short hair, and uh, would wear like a sport coat, and looked very different from how he looked when I first met him. He uh, uh, he was. um, much more, the, I guess, the beatnik type before the hippies came along. And then he became, he was called the world's oldest hippie for many, many years. And, uh, but so when I met him, we, we struck up a friendship, even though I was only 16. Uh, I was very interested in becoming a writer and, uh, and he was very, very encouraging. And, and, uh, the first book I ever wrote, although the first published book I wrote was The Twilight Zone Companion, the first book I ever wrote was in college. It was called Three Interviews on Media and Society. And I interviewed Theodore Sturgeon, the great Theodore Sturgeon, who also wrote for Star Trek and many other books and short stories. Ron Cobb, who was a designer on Alien and Aliens and Star Wars and uh, and george clayton johnson so i interviewed them and wrote uh, prefatory introductions about them and included samples of their work and it was a book-length publication i had it bound as a hardcover someday i'll probably publish it just because it's it's a wonderful piece of work and uh and very uh informative about these three amazing men so um so so george so i did that when i was i think 19 or maybe yeah around 19 and uh and then I got out of college, so I was um, 21 years old. And I knew I wanted to be a writer, producer in TV, and there were no classes in that. So, so I started thinking about, well, how do I learn this? And I started coming up with the idea of doing a book on The Twilight Zone. And George was the one I was talking to about this, and he was very, very encouraging. And, uh, and, uh, and I, one thing I should also mention is when, when Logan's Run came out, I think it came out around 1975, something like that. And um, uh, so I took George and uh, MGM was still in existence it's Sony Columbia TriStar now but MGM was there and they had a, one wall of their outside wall of the studio had this gigantic billboard of Logan's run and so George and I drove there and I took photos of George standing by the gigantic letters of his name on that billboard and, uh, <laughs> which I'll include in The Twilight Zone Companion the new edition but, uh, but it was just, just such a fun day and, and, and he was thrilled to have his novel being made into a major motion picture and, uh, so, but now, now, now we go to me, I'm 22 years old, start writing The Twilight Zone Companion, and George was the first person I interviewed, and, and I knew I couldn't go to Carol Serling directly, I, uh, I hadn't written any books, other than that one I'd done as a college paper, uh, I'd sold One Short Story, my degree was in art, but George allowed me to interview him, and then he connected me up with Jerry Sowell, another writer on The Twilight Zone, and Buck Houghton, the producer, and I started interviewing people, and I interviewed 30 people, before I went to Carol Sterling to see if she'd let me do the book, and I'd heard she'd already turned down major journalists, but George was so encouraging, and uh, and I talked to Carol, and she talked to people that she trusted, Buck Houghton, possibly George, and uh, and I got to go ahead to do the book. And years later, as many years later, in fact, last year, uh, I said to jo- I saw saw George at, a, at a, the American Cinema Tech, and I said to him, Why did you, why did you encourage me? Why did you think I could pull this off? And he said, Because I was just a kid. And he said. Uh, you were very, very intelligent, and very determined, and I just had the feeling you could you could do it, and so and thanks to him I did, and uh, over the years and over the years George grew a long beard, and I took more photos of him that appeared in books that he wrote, and uh, and uh, he had this long beard he, They were for decades and long hair and always in these electric colors and always welcoming and kind to everyone, not just to me, and uh, and he was he was someone who uh, was the great writer a great writer? I mean, "Kick the Can" I think is one of the greatest pieces of writing ever done in television. "Nothing in the Dark" is superlative. I mean, these are these are scripts that are not only wonderfully, beautifully, poetically written. "Kick the Can" is just gorgeous, but also um, also deeply profound about real life. And uh, and I realized, and something I learned from from George Clayton Johnson and from Harlan Ellison, uh, was that you could write one episode of one show, and it could change people's lives forever and that we have a great responsibility as writers and that's what i'm doing now with space command of course i i i I believe i believe in that as a as a as a great gift and a great possibility but most writers you know just kind of waste people's time and they write things that are about nothing and that was certainly not true of george clayton johnson everything george wrote was meaningful everything george wrote was an exploration of, of of the real world through a fantasy context and um you know, and 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 he he made, he was the same every, you know, from when I first met him to when you know I last saw him, which was just a few months ago. He was he was the same bright spirit, the same delightful man, the same just full of ideas, full of of warmth and compassion, a kind, incredibly kind. He never had a bad word to say about anyone. Uh, just 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 a fine fine person, and uh, you know, and just um, someone who was always you know there to listen to people, to talk to people, um, and. And full of fun, full of delight. So so this is sort of my, my piece about George Clayton Johnson. And uh, I'm sure if you Google George Clayton Johnson, you can find video of him and you can see what I'm talking about. He, uh, he was a remarkable man. There's and, and again, as with Bradbury, as with Harlan Ellison, as with so many of these brilliant, brilliant writers who were there at the right place at the right time, in the right circle to, to do their great work. Uh, once you met them, you'd never forget them. They, they were completely totally unique and i know you're not supposed to put a modifier before unique but in this case i think it's appropriate because uh, i'm so blessed to have known, known george, george clayton johnson i'm so blessed to have experienced his work i think kick the can he wrote kick the can when he was in his 20s i think it's the best thing ever written about old age and needing to be young again and stay young in spirit and george exemplified that in his life and in his work and uh and i think if you want to be wonderfully entertained and deeply moved. Just go watch Kick the Can again. And he wrote about death in Nothing in the Dark, which was inspired by a story that Ray Bradbury wrote called Death and the Maiden, but is better than Death and the Maiden. And, uh, and also, if you want to hear George talk about his work, I'm, I, uh, I made sure that all of his four great Twilight Zone episodes, that we did audio commentaries with George about them. So if you go to the Blu-ray, you can hear George talking with me about those entire episodes and everything behind them and how he originated them. And uh, I'm so glad that I made it a point Get him on the record talking about his work, so, so he lives in my heart. Uh, we had a, a memorial for for him the other the other day at the American Cinema Tech with William F. Nolan, his great collaborator and friend, and others who were touched by him and moved by him, and an audience that was able to share our memories and watch his great work again on the big screen. So, um, so that's it for now. Feel free to like and spread the word about Mr. Sci-Fi. Uh, much more to come in the near future. I'll be posting a number more of these videos very soon. And thanks, and we'll talk again. Bye-bye.
2: There you go. I'll put a link on so you'll kind of fly over to Mark's site, and I'm sure Mark will be able to kind of point you in directions about George Clayton Johnson. Thank you, Mark. It's just nice and enlightening to find out about this, this writer that's sadly no longer with us. So that is, that's the show. It's wrapped up, took, took the away and put to bed. I hope you enjoyed it. Number four hundred and twenty-eight is finished. Like I say, think about what for the Hugo, do you know what I mean? If you're not having a vote in, spread the word. That would do just as much. And well, we'll see you next time. Until then, just like I say, good night from me. Ooh.
0: survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Social Sofa. Evacuation procedure machine. Shovel set for wash. Airlock will in three,
1: two,